Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners uh, with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. But first, joining us is my good friend Todd Harrison, the managing director for Matreya Strategic Insights, the independent internal think tank within the innovative defense and aerospace company. Before joining Matreya, Todd spent seven years heading the aerospace security project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies and has spent the last two plus decades of his life analyzing uh, the Pentagon budget. Todd, uh, thanks very much for joining us. Congratulations on the new position again, uh, and welcome yeah. back on the program. Thanks, Vago. It's good to be back. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure welcoming you uh, back. Uh, before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And our coverage of the Association of the United States Army's annual meeting and trade show was sponsored by Leonardo DRS and Safran. Uh, Todd, uh, again, welcome back uh, to the program. And before we get to your budget analysis, which I thought was uh, terrific, tell uh, the audience a little bit about Matrix. Uh, which is the new name for a company that we've mentioned on this program from time to time, uh, which was called Meta Aerospace. Uh, what's Matreya and what is it that you guys are doing that's different from whatever? Yeah, well, you know, we, we changed our name just a, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I think for obvious reasons that the name Meta uh, had be, uh, uh, become associated with someone else. Uh, yes. And so we really, even though you had this name way before yes. the other, it was a glimmer in the other company's eye, I would point out. But it's a good opportunity, um, you know, to refocus uh, the brand uh, and what you know we're really trying to do and how it's different. I mean, you know, the whole you know principle behind uh, Matreya uh, is to leverage commercial business models uh, for innovation in defense. Uh, we are, you know, mission focused uh, on you know our customers, our national security customers. Uh, we're a pretty diversified company working across uh, multiple domains, uh, but you know our, our our basic business model is delivering effects as a service, uh, right. and so that's what we do in the air domain. We do aerial refueling as a service. We do airborne ISI as a service. Um, you know, we do space as a service. Uh, you know, you name it. Uh, you can go down the list. Uh, we're a company of about 900 people worldwide, uh, headquartered here in Washington D.C. Uh, and uh, it's uh, really amazing that uh, you guys are also operating uh, on a worldwide basis, uh, actually, which is which is pretty impressive given the size and scale of what it is you guys do. Um, so talk to us a little bit about what you're doing is is different, right? Because you're an, an, a completely independent entity within Matreya that is uh, supposed to be a little bit like Northrop's internal think tank, right? Uh, speaking truth to power, both internally and externally on what long range strategic and budget trends have, have to say. Yeah, I mean, the idea of what I'm standing up at Matreya Strategic Insights uh, is to be you know, customer focused uh, and to you know, work on the hardest challenges, the wicked problems that are facing our government customers. Um, and you know, our, our kind of guiding principles uh, at MSI are to provide objective, insightful, innovative, but pathfinding research 
for our government customers. Uh, and so, you know, that in that sense, I'm basically doing what I've been doing, you know, for years uh, in the think tank world. Uh, and, you know, that's why uh, the first paper that I published is doing what I've done for, you know, every budget request for the past 13 years uh, is do an analysis uh, of the budget request. And what do the trends really tell us? Uh, and speaking of which, um, what are the most interesting trends this budget is telling you, uh, Todd? <laughs> a lot going on in this budget. Um, <laughs> yeah, in, in my analysis, uh, you know, folks can read it online, but I kind of framed it uh, using a construct that Deputy Secretary Kath Hicks, uh, my former boss at CSIS, <laughs> but she in several talks about the uh, 23 budget request uh, and the new national defense strategy, she framed it as a three fight up approach, right? So the fight up is a future year's defense program. It's a five year plan that's included with each budget request. Um, and her basic point, which I think we would all agree with is that the challenges we're facing now uh, are not challenges, you know, that we can expect to, you know, fully meet within a five-year planning cycle. This right. requires a three-fight-up planning cycle uh, to eventually get to the force design that we want in the future. Uh, but at the same time, there are a lot of immediate needs that have to be taken care of in that first fight-up while we're trying to put ourselves in a position to be ready for the fight three fight-ups from now. So, you know, to your question, you know, what some of the most interesting things? Well, I'll start with the stuff, the, the bread and butter uh, of any budget. Two thirds of the budget uh, goes for uh, personnel and operation and maintenance costs, what we like to call the operation and sustainment side of the budget. Within the MILPERS uh, accounts, military personnel accounts, turns out the budget projects that that'll be the fastest growing area of the budget over the next five years. Fastest growing area, it's going to grow by 20%. Uh, in nominal terms over the next five years. Uh, and my look at that is I think they may still be underestimating how much those costs will grow. Uh, and uh, you pointed out, right, it's a 4.6% pay raise uh, that they've got to factor into this as well, um, which is a lot of money, right? So everybody understands, you know, that inflation pressures are high across society, but that's going to be a lot of money, isn't it? It's a lot of money, but here's the thing is that the, those pay raises uh, in future years are set based on the employment cost index that is calculated by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Uh, the employment cost index, the ECI, that will determine the FY24 pay raise, so that won't come out until the next budget, um, that ECI number is set to be released actually this Friday, October 28th. Uh, and, you know, the latest data, you know, short of the release that's coming this Friday, the latest data is pointing to that ECI uh, is probably going to be near 6%. Now, I don't think DOD, when they came out with this FY23 budget request, I don't think they were planning uh, for a close to 6% pay raise in FY24. I mean, they were planning that inflation would go back to normal levels in FY23. Right. Uh, and so I think that they're, you know, about to get a shock to the system uh, in the FY24 budget planning cycle when this ECI number comes out. And, and, and so does Congress just make more money available or does this put pressure on other uh, accounts, right? Some of which sound a little overly optimistic. For example, right, almost every budget line went up, but operations and maintenance funding uh, actually is staying flat, which seems weird. Right. Either they're going to get rid of a lot of equipment 
are under budgeting uh, the equipment, uh, right? Because it's an older force and actually O&M costs every year have been going up uh, on an objective basis, right? So yeah. what does the higher personnel cost mean and how do you actually answer that oddness in O&M funding? Yeah. So, I mean, what the higher personnel costs mean is that you're going to have to beg, borrow and steal, right? You're going to have to try to ask for a higher top line budget, um, get as much of that as you can. That's obviously the you know, first choice for DOD. Uh, when you, you know, if uh, you cannot get enough of a top line budget increase to fully cover higher personnel costs each year as they materialize, uh, then you've got to go and borrow money from other accounts um, you know, steal money where you can <laughs> from things that might be a lower priority that aren't must pay bills. But, you know, what you pointed out about operation and maintenance cost, it is flat in this fight up, essentially flat in nominal terms. When you right. adjust that for inflation, especially the high level of inflation that we're experiencing now, uh, that's a declining O&M budget. That is completely contrary to what we've seen historically. Historically, I point this out in the report, O&M costs when you adjust for the size of the force, when you take out war-related funding, when you take out healthcare, which is actually funded in O&M, take all that other noise out, uh, O&M costs tend to grow about 2.6% above inflation annually. That's what we've seen. It's, it's pretty steady historically for the past 50, 60 years that we've seen that. Um, and especially if you look at you know the aging inventory of equipment that we've got right now, uh, it kind of makes you scratch your head wondering how did they think that this O&M projection would actually be realistic. So again, you know, if MILPERS might be underfunded in the future years, O&M is almost certainly uh, underfunded in future years. Um, let me uh, take you to the question of, of the budget uh, split, right? Senior leaders talk about the Pacific as a naval and air theater, but the reality is the service with the biggest increase is actually the Navy and Marine Corps. Uh, both of which uh, are being challenged on their priorities, right? Uh, in terms of, wait a minute, have they really got this figured out? Uh, uh, Commandant Berger uh, gets kudos for his innovative approach, but it has caused a lot of uh, tension, uh, both in the active forces as, in the, as well as in the retired uh, community about whether or not the Marine Corps should be exclusively focused on China and the budget authority it's given up uh, is potentially giving, is, is giving up, right? I mean, as a tendency- right. If you give stuff up in the hopes of getting money back later, that tends never to work right, even though there are promises in that sense. And in the case of the Navy, it's just sort of a more blatant sort of, hey, these guys are really not managing their resources well uh, at all without being disrespectful to the right. I mean, they build spend tens of billions of dollars on the littoral combat ship and then are going to get rid of the littoral combat ship. You could have been buying yeah. extra submarines or destroyers or munitions or other things you need. And yet the Air Force. Uh, and here's where I sort of agree with uh, uh, the dean of the Mitchell Institute, our mutual friend, Dave Deptula. The Air Force budget is, is actually not increasing that much. And there's so much pass through that's in the Air Force uh, budget. Full disclosure, you, you served in the United States Air Force. Um, walk us through a little bit about this split and what does it mean? Because arguably, the Air Force is sort of the best vision and sort of idea without being service specific. And yet it's actually not benefiting from the kind of funding it needs in order to be executing the capability delivery for that long range plan and long range deterrence and strike that we need. Yeah, no, and space I, I, I and think, everything else. Right. I mean, I think that is one of the striking things when you look at this budget and the fight up projections and the split by service. So first of all, as a percentage increase, the Space Force is getting the most right. But as a dollar amount, it's pretty small. 
compared to the other services. And a lot of that big increase in the Space Force budget is really just transferring money that already existed in other parts of the budget. Um, so it's not new money, all of it, about half of it, by my estimate, is really just transfers of money that and funding lines that were already there. Um, but you're right, you know, the Marine Corps actually comes out, um, you know, uh, in a pretty good position here. I would argue that I think that's because Marine Corps has done a pretty good job getting out in front uh, of the strategy in terms of rebalancing their budget uh, and figuring out, you know, how they can, uh, you know, uh, adapt their force structure and their spending priorities to the new strategy and to the increased focus on the Pacific. And that's something that the Marine Corps started doing uh, well before uh, the 2022 NDS came out. Uh, the Navy, I think, you know, has similarly uh, been doing some rebalancing like that. Um, but the Air Force is really a head scratcher. You've got so many major acquisition programs that are really, you know, either you know, at full rate production, ramping up to full rate production, uh, or are transitioning from development into production over this fight up. Uh, I think the Air Force uh, has probably got some of the, uh, you know, uh, most difficult budgetary challenges over the next five years. Um, so one of the things that, answer my last question, one of the things that you discovered is either, uh, right, and so one explanation for this could be that the, the, the massive increase we're seeing in sort of unidentified areas of the budget could be for black programs, right? And, and we know that the US Air Force has a tendency of leading all the services when it comes to black programs. Uh, and, and some of which are coming into fruition under Frank Kendall's tenure as uh, secretary that began when he was ATNL uh, during the Obama administration. Or you've posited that this could be a bishop's fund, right? What, uh, a slush fund effectively. And so walk us through why you think this is not a massive bulge of black programs and it's actually a slush fund and if it is a slush fund then how does actually congress allow it right because normally you have to have a budget line an actual line item as opposed to tens of billions of dollars that end up sitting around you know by the end of the first fight first of these three fight ups yeah so this this is where uh, i get really geeky going into the the deep dark uh underbellies <laughs> of the budget request um so if you look at the FIDEP projection, right? So what comes out is you get a top line projection by account uh, and you can find that uh, some of the data is in the green book, but a, a better picture of the data is actually in the OMB public budget database, a spreadsheet that they publish each year. You can see account by account what the projection is out over the five year time horizon. Then if you go into the detailed uh, service by service budget justification documents for RDT&E accounts, uh, and you add up all of the numbers in there uh, over the five-year period, uh, you'll see something, and this is not new, you'll see that in the out years, so for this fight up, that's FY24 to 27, that the sum of the details in the J books do not add up to the total for those accounts there is this difference uh, that is unreported in those out years. Now, in the first year of the request, it all adds up. Now, you'll see in the first year of the five-year request uh, that there's huge funding allocated for unnamed classified programs. And then you'll see that those unnamed classified programs have no projection beyond the first year. 
So in most years, you can look at this and say, okay, what is that difference, you know, in those out years that unreported money, I like to call it budgetary dark matter, because you can infer that it's there, but you can't see it directly. Um, well, you know, what does that dark matter add up to in those out years compared to the classified programs? And they're usually pretty similar, which, you know, you look at that and you say, oh, well, it's probably just those classified programs continuing. There may be some other things, little things here and there, but, you know, it's pretty well explained. In this budget request, I saw something different. In defense-wide RDT&E accounts, you look at that dark matter out there for FY24 to 27, uh, and it gets larger and larger over time, much larger than the classified programs, the unnamed classified programs that are reported in FY23. Uh, so we're talking, you know, in FY23, um, you know, defense-wide classified programs was a little over $8 billion. Uh, by uh, FY27, that unreported funding out there uh, grows to almost 19 billion. Uh, so huge difference there. Now, you know, as you said, it could be that there are some classified programs, maybe new or expanded classified programs. They're being funded through a defense-wide RDT&E account, so not through any of the military services, and maybe it's growing and it's becoming huge. Um, we've never seen classified RDT&E funding of that size in defense-wide ever before. Um, that would be unusual, certainly possible that that is the explanation. The other thing that I thought about, though, uh, is that, you know, what, what could be going on here is that DOD has set aside a bishop's fund of sorts, right, uh, in the out years where they're just creating a wedge of money uh, and they're saying, hey, look, we're going to hold this. Uh, in a defense-wide RDT&E account. We don't have to report on it because there's no funding for it in the first year of the request. Uh, and we're going to wait and see how we dole this money out in future years. Uh, now, so I wouldn't call it a slush fund. I would call it kind of a, a holding uh, you know, fund where they can wait and see how they want to dole out this money in future years. So could be that, could be classified programs, could be something else, but it's a large chunk of money out there that's not explained. You know, I mean, this kind of thing only works if all of the big four, you know, the committees are behind it. Um, I, what's the budgetary maneuver that allows the department to do this? The main way that they would be able to do this uh, is it is in the out years only. It's not in the year of the request that Congress is acting on. So Congress does not have to vote on this funding. They don't have to appropriate it uh, or anything because uh, it's only FY24 and beyond. Uh, and DOD doesn't actually have to report it uh, in their detailed budget justification documents. Uh, now, uh, I imagine, though, that there are folks on the Hill uh, who have noticed this, who have questioned it, uh, and they probably gotten classified briefings about what it might be. Um, but I think the way that you could get a, away with a bishop's fund like this is the fact that it's only in the out years. Uh, when next year's budget comes out and it's got FY24 in it, they'll have to actually... Uh, show the detailed justification right. for where that money is going, what it's being used for. Todd, as usual, uh, great work. Great to have you on the program and look forward to having you uh, back on the program more often uh, now that you're settled in over there. Thanks so very much. Thanks, Vago. And joining us today, as he does on most Mondays, is my good friend Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners to discuss the week ahead and whatever else uh, is on his mind. Byron, welcome back. And it's always a pleasure having you on the program. Absolutely. I look forward to it every Monday, Vago.
uh, same here, and it was uh, it was great also hearing from Todd Harrison, uh, our mutual friend, uh, in his first interview since he joined uh, his uh, took up his new role at Matreya, uh, and certainly it was a very budget focused uh, conversation uh, on this uh, the first day of uh, Diwali. So happy Diwali, uh, everybody, and uh, we'll talk about Rishi Sunak, uh, the first uh, Hindu Indian, um, uh, or I should say, first British of. Uh, Hindu-Indian uh, extraction uh, to become Prime Minister of the United Kingdom uh, and how he sort of got, uh, got uh, on the job and, and what that tells us about how we have to be careful about our own economic stewardship. Um, great note uh, on kneecapping China uh, via export controls uh, and Russian defense modernization. Walk us through some of the big themes and some of the notes that you uh, put out uh, over the past week. Well, I think, look, these keyed off some events that were held last week and actually a report that was put out by uh, the Center for New American Security on Russian military modernization. Um, but I thought, you know, the, kind of the background or um, some of the China stuff was just interesting. And it was really kind of getting to the why now, what, what drove the U.S. decision, and then the kind of what next and what some of the uncertainties are. And you know, there are arguments that um, this is really an attempt, you know, not just to keep China a generation behind U.S. or Western technology, but to really put as much distance <clears throat> as possible. Um, and I, I think that was kind of the, the gist of comments that Jake Sullivan had made last week uh, on, on these, these measures. I think the other part is really the security or military motivation for this, which is, you know, I think as people know, um, you know, advanced computing technology, advanced microelectronics are really foundational to things like um, stimulation and modeling and also artificial intelligence. And in the context of China, they have nuclear um, and hypersonic applications, as well as, you know, this whole concern of, of China fielding uh, more weapons, more intelligence uh, systems that <clears throat> pull on AI to shorten their decision times and, uh, and make them a more capable and effective military. Um, I think the other part to keep in mind is this could be viewed as a cost imposition strategy. You know, China has resource limits like all countries do. And so forcing China to recreate <clears throat> Uh, a semiconductor ecosystem that now, you know, the, the world is drawing off of that really reflects investments that have been made by Taiwan, the United States, Japan, South Korea, uh, the Netherlands, you know, just to pick on some of the major component parts of, of the semiconductor manufacturing ecosystem. It's going to cost China money, and it's going to take talent <clears throat> from parts of their economy that you know, might have been more directly involved in, in military efforts. So I think, you know, that the next steps forward are going to be to see, you know, well, how do our allies line up on some of these uh, restrictions? Uh, I think, you know, Taiwan came out and said, yes, they supported the new export controls. That was an important first step. <clears throat> but we still have to see how other countries line up. And I think the other point that was made that I think was a good one is, you know, the Biden administration was really showing how serious this whole issue is by inflicting pain on U.S. companies um, and U.S. citizens. And so that's another message that shouldn't be lost in, um, in, in the administration moves on China. Do you expect more moves 
uh, with uh, some of the news stories in the Washington Post, uh, especially that actually the Chinese military depends a lot on Western software and hardware uh, to address all of its own organic domestic shortcomings. Do you think that this, right? I mean, this is sort of an escalating capability, right? As um, uh, Eric uh, Sayers is fond of saying, right? Uh, we don't really care whether our lawn furniture is made there and a, a lot of less technical things, but we do have a problem if some of our technology is going into their weapons systems. Do you expect more moves? And what does that mean then for decoupling? Well, yeah, and I think that's a really interesting issue is this has to be a multilateral, a multinational effort. I mean, the U.S. can't do all this all alone. And maybe to pivot to the CMAS report on Russia, you know, I think one of their premises or observations was Russia you know, really going back to the Soviet Union has a pretty good legacy of being able to um, sweep Western technology into uh, their country, you know, even if it's sanctioned um, and under pretty stringent export control. So I think this is never going to be airtight. And I think it's foolish to think that China could never um, achieve kind of the, the semiconductor levels that the West is, has achieved or Asia has really achieved. I shouldn't put this all as an American advance. It's really a lot of this is, you know, the driver's really been Taiwan and uh, TSMC um, and Samsung as well. I, I just think that, but it, the idea is, you know, you're at least maybe buying a little bit more of a window where we can play some catch up here, uh, better secure some of our own supply chain. And, and also, I think this is the other really critical part of it is, is realign some of the defense budget. So you actually are importing some of these technologies and really applying them. Um, and, and, you know, that, that I think is going to be a critical element too, that um, it's, it's one thing to deny China <clears throat> some of these technologies. It's going to be another for the U.S., to, to actually apply it to their national security needs. And the same is going to be true in Europe and Asia. Uh, but wanted to get your sense, right? I mean, um, you know, when when it comes to uh, the financial picture, um, it's, it's fascinating how the statements of a prime minister, in this case, Liz Truss, and sort of a very imbalanced economic plan that everybody warned her against doing. You can't sharply cut taxes and sharply increase government spending without having a catastrophe. I recall when Silvio Berlusconi uh, did the same thing in Italy many years ago, right? Italian debt wasn't an issue and overnight financial markets made it an issue. Uh, that's what happened with the drop in the British pound, pound and the increased cost of gilts. I mean, it became a, a challenge. And it was the same thing that the BCA, right? When it looked like the United States was gonna default uh, on its debt, all of a sudden, financial markets downgraded uh, America's credit rating, and it has stayed downgraded, I would like to remind everybody. What what can Washington learn from this at a time when our debt is now uh, at a record level? Yeah, we're almost, you know, over, it depends how you want to count it, but I, most people look at, you know, the government debt that's held internally, you know, and things like trust funds, and then the external debt that's held by individuals and countries, institutions. But um, look, you know, one of the things that resurfaced last week was a statement uh, made by Larry Kudlow, <clears throat> you know, economist, I think he'd actually served in the Trump administration, uh, that he had stated in a, I guess it was a Fox um, business show on September 23rd, where he said the new British 
uh, Prime Minister Liz Truss has laid out a terrific supply-side economic growth plan that looks a lot like the basic thrust of Kevin McCarthy's commitment to America plan. She is slashing tax rates and deregulating energy. I just love it. The liberal business media is now trashing her plan. That tells me Truss has it exactly right. Well, it wasn't the liberal business media that trashed her plan. It was markets because they saw what this potentially could do um, to, to Britain's fiscal condition. And so I think it's it's kind of a warning shot. And that's what concerns me about the outcome of the midterm elections is, you know, at the least we're going to see uh, very sharp partisan battles again, not that they haven't been there, but, you know, budgets have been able to move forward on very slim majorities. And, and I just worry that, you know, if we're worried about a continued resolution, through December 16th, the outcome of the midterm elections in the United States could really uh, put those concerns on steroids that we're going to see pretty nasty budget battles in the first part of the new year with the new Congress seated. And again, you know, the warning shots could be similar to something like what we saw over the when the Budget Control Act was birthed, which was really a threat to default on uh, U.S. Treasury payments. And, and that prompted you know, this years long risk of sequestration that came out of the Budget Control Act. So I think, you know, once you get on the other side of this earnings season for defense contractors, that's probably where markets are going to focus. And I I think there's risk there. Uh, it is uh, it is indeed a period that uh, could be uh, fraught uh, with risk when, you know, economic ideology takes the place of, of, of market sense. Uh, again, I mean, we ended up with the Budget Control Act in order to avoid uh, a debt default. And there's a tendency of uh, sort of taking that lightly, especially the United States, uh, where the dollar is the world's reserve currency, in part because we, we always pay our bills. You know, Jeremy Hunt, uh, you know, when he became chancellor and re- replaced Kwasi Kwarteng, um, you know, and he reversed track and said, we're going to have to cut spending as well as increase taxes. Well, the first thing he said is, you know, United Kingdom always makes good on its debts, uh, which had a tendency of reassuring financial markets. And, and Byron, really quickly, before we go uh, to earnings, takeaways uh, on the on Russia's war on Ukraine, as well as what we're seeing in Iran. Well, I think, you know, first, this is again keying off some of the events that took place last week, some of the think tank events. You know, there was a consensus that these protests are different, um, that you could be seeing an emerging revolution, but you know my own take revolutions are very difficult to predict, um, and and yet you know I think we all have to be aware of what's going on in Iran and frankly how that also could play into the potential renewal of, of or the rejoining of the U.S. to JCPOA. You know, on my note, I I thought that was increasingly looking like the uh, the, the parrot in the famous Monty Python sketch about this. <laughs> so. Um, and then on on Russia Ukraine, you know, I think your your interview with Phil Carver was really interesting. His comment about the uh, Ukrainian rail system and their reliance on electricity, and that they use a, a older Soviet gauge for their rail system, not the kind of standard European or U.S. gauge. You know, it it was an interesting observation. I just I still think we're in for a slog here, um, uh, but I think you know maybe the other point is. Russia's fighting a war. Um, they may not be winning on the battlefield, but they sure as hell are doing a lot of damage to Ukrainian infrastructure. And the comment about the impact on the Ukrainian rail system also, I think, would bear on Ukraine's ability to move logistics, uh, to provide logistics support to its military. So 
that's just something else that I thought was was interesting, uh, particularly in the context of you know the Iranian supply of equipment to to uh, to Russia, their kamikaze drones and and short range missiles, which I don't think we've seen the battlefield debut of, but that's going to be probably the next ugly chapter in this conflict. Uh, and I would uh, suggest folks uh, check out our interview with Dr. Phil Carber of the Potomac Foundation Think Tank. Uh, and it certainly was a very thoughtful conversation. And we're going to have Phil back on uh, soon. Uh, very quickly, um, companies uh, reported Lockheed was on the vanguard. It met consensus earnings. Uh, but one of the things that's always frustrated you is companies sort of going to share buybacks. And Ron Epstein uh, of Bank of America on our Sunday program uh, noted that, look, it was as much making consensus earnings as the company's pledge uh, to continue buying back shares. And before the uh, end of last week, we had L3 Harris join uh, that chorus. Your view on buybacks, but more importantly, what do you think the Lockheed earnings tell us about what to expect from the group? Because you know everybody's going to start reporting today and beyond. Well, yeah, and I, I absolutely, you know, the, the magnitude of the buyback, um, the fact that they're borrowing money to do this. I think there was also some signaling that, you know, they were talking about partnering. So no big defense acquisitions, uh, which I think would be improbable in any event in the kind of a, uh, regulatory environment we're in. Um, but I also think, you know, at the end of the day, the the sales comparisons were positive. Um, we hadn't seen that in two quarters. Uh, the outlay data for September came out after Lockheed Martin's report, but there were pretty good pretty good growth in the calendar quarter calendar third quarter of 2022 in defense investment outlay. So I think the setup is pretty good, you know. But my fundamental views haven't changed on. Um, uh, on buybacks as a use of capital. I, I think markets are, you know, there are people who love buybacks, but I, I remain concerned about, you know, okay, are you really taking the steps to invest in your business? Um, are you doing all that you can, uh, you know, to, to make sure that you've got a, a resilient business that has a healthy supply chain and that you're attracting the best talent you can. And, um, uh, I'm not always sure of the buybacks. There, there's certainly been plenty. There, there, you know, markets are littered with examples of companies that focused intensively on buybacks, only to see their uh, their their fundamental markets challenged by new companies willing to disrupt them. And that's been my concern with with large cap defense that uh, this overwhelming focus on on buybacks, I think every time they do that, you have to ask is, is that really their optimal use of free cash flow? And your expectations uh, for the group before we go on what to expect in the week ahead? Yeah, I mean, generally, I, I think the outlay number was the the key setup. Um, but I also think, you know, the fact that, that now there may be nuances that we're not aware of, but I think one of the other takeaways from <clears throat> the Lockheed Martin results is they certainly haven't seen inflationary cost pressures erode their operating margins, or more importantly, their operating margin expectations <clears throat> that they're able to deal with. Uh, now, they they said they had productivity uh, gains. Those weren't defined, but um, this is a sector that seems largely immune to some of the inflationary pressures that are uh, taking their toll on you know other industrial or consumer goods sectors. Uh, and really quickly, what should the audience be paying attention to uh, this week? Well, besides earnings, uh, you know, Royal United Services Institute is doing an event on Tuesday on North Korea's evolving missile program. 
the Association of Old Crows is holding their annual uh, symposium and exhibition. That's an electronic warfare group uh, in Washington, D.C. We'll kind of look for what comes out of that. The senior DOD leadership is, is spe speaking at that. Um, Alan Estevez is speaking at CNAS on Thursday on this whole uh, you know, export control issue. I, I'm very interested in what he has to say. And um, there are a couple other, I'm sure there are going to be other pop-up events on the wake of the uh, 20th Party Congress in China and um, some of the other geopolitical issues that remain low simmer to low boil. Uh, in, indeed. Uh, Byron, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks very much. Uh, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks very much. Thank you, Vago. <laughs>